welcome to another episode of the Bonzo Boys Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Oisa, here with Julian and Patrick Delabanza. All right, today's topic is going to be called Music and Law. All right, we have a wonderful, wonderful, impressive guest that's making me question everything I've done in life. All right, so today's guest is a music lawyer who currently serves as a legal and business affairs manager in A&R at Columbia Records. In 2012, she began her legal career as a trainee solicitor solicitor at the prestigious London law firm, Slaughter and May. Two years later, she was admitted as a solicitor. Is that right? Solicitor? No? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, there it is. And began practicing as a corporate finance lawyer. During her time as a corporate finance lawyer, she advised multinational companies, as well as represented the African Export-Import Bank, a pan-African multilateral trade finance institution on various um, financing transactions across Africa. In 2017, she entered her current career trajectory by becoming global legal counsel to Banku Music Pioneer, Mr. Eze. Is it? Is that, is that correct? I don't want to mispronounce. Easy. Oh, okay, right. Easy. As it wasn't easy. As his counsel, she negotiated various commercial, publishing, and licensing deals with labels and distribution companies in Africa, the UK, and the US. She would also represent and advise other notable artists and personalities such as is it YC, R two B's, Legendary Beats, and Eddie Cod Eddie Cotty. It is our hey. pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Crystal Kayebi. 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 KB, Crystal KB. We should definitely clap for me doing that intro. We should definitely clap. <laughs> I know. Man, you really got through it, man. I know it was. No, this, this is incredible. First of all, Crystal, thank you for being here. You know. Thank you guys for having me. Of course. Oh, man, of course. No, merci. Okay, so you know, we're going to get right. We're going to get right. Well, first of all, how are you doing? How are you doing with the corona and everything? and I'm okay. I mean, work is still business as usual, so I'm just normally in my kitchen, my my now desk and my now office just working. But yeah, music hasn't really stopped. It's kind of the same. Um, obviously, we're recorded music and not live. Yeah. Our kind of business hasn't changed. It's just everyone's working from home. Everyone's doing calls from home, um, which was nice at first. But I think I'm I'm in my eleventh week now. Yeah. And it's getting a bit much now. I'm like, oh, actually, I want to see my friends. Right. I want to have more options than you know. Do I hang out in my room or in my living room? So. <laughs> well, are you? Are you in? You're in London. Yes, I live in London now. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah. Isn't it amazing how much we we need people? I didn't know we needed people this much. Like, I need to be around people. Yeah, I think also, especially when you're like, um, when you finally get a job, or you know, like, oh, actually, like my colleagues, you know, I I like being around these people, and I was like taken away from you but you know I have good chats with all like my colleagues that you know they're not just in my colleagues they're also my good friends so we chat daily we still you know we still speak to each other and start the day you know with some words of affirmation and we just, just debate stuff so we're still kind of in contact but you're just not physically there yeah uh, uh, very tough yeah so let me ask you this for our American audience because you know we're based out of LA mm-hmm. what is the difference between being a solicitor versus being a lawyer here in the States? Okay, so the main difference is in the UK, we have a separation of a solicitor and a barrister, which you guys don't have. Mm -hmm. So you guys have the amalgamation of the two roles, right? 
Yeah. Um, so, so what what we do is, as a solicitor, you're more transaction-based, you're more drafting, you're more negotiations. Oh. Um, and a barrister is actually the person that goes to court and tries cases. So barristers tend to be litigation-based lawyers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, compared to, I mean, barristers can do both because they are actually trained as lawyers as well, mm-hmm. um, or solicitors, but they are not solicitors. I think it's more that they can do a lot more than we do, so they can still draft stuff and whatever because they're still regulated. But we as a lawyer, unless you have like a special qualification, to be able to be heard in certain courts, we couldn't go and represent someone in court. I mean, you could do it in small claims court and so a certain lower court, but like you wouldn't be able to go to the like our Supreme Court or the House of, uh, what is it, Supreme Court or mm. the other one, I can't remember now. Mm-hmm. So one of those. Yeah. Okay. Um, in the UK, um, so yeah, is a juris doctorate? Is it like an undergraduate degree, or is it like a post uh, post undergrad or postgraduate degree, like here in the states? I know no, the we don't have that. We don't uh-huh. have that. We don't have that. So we go to we go to uni and we study. Um, you can study what well, there's two different parts of doing it, right? So you mm-hmm. can do the the law side, which is and um, you study law and you. You get an LLB, so um, uh, it's a it's a it's a qualifying legal degree, mm-hmm. um, which means that you have to study certain subjects, and I think you have to have certain a certain amount of subjects studied to be able to get that. So that's when you get your LLB. Well, some people just get BA honors, but that's not a qualifying legal degree. Uh-huh. And then you go to law school, so you do law school for a year, or someone like me, I did law school in six months. Mm. Um, or you do the other route where you can just study whatever the hell you want, you know, which I was considering doing because I actually wanted to study American studies. Um, and then you take a one-year um, conversion course, which is called the GDL, mm. which then converts your BA honors course into a qualifying legal degree mm. because you study certain of the core things, contract, tort, equity, trust, you know, those core modules. And then you do another year of law school for six months if you do the, the accelerated course. So in all in all, it's either four years or three and a half years or five years or four and a half. Okay. So Patrick, how long was law school for you, Patrick? Law school was three years, but, you know, so you do undergrad and then yeah. after that three years of law school. If you do, you know, full time. But obviously, you know, you meet people who do part time. That's a whole other thing. But that's because I remember when I was looking at your uh, your bio, Christelle, and it was like seven months. I was like, seven months for law school? Jesus. It's- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, my law, so how it also works, I'm not sure how you guys do it, but you will apply to certain law firms in your second year. So in your, what do you guys call it, sophomore year? or Too well, too well, but yeah. Yeah, so your second year, you apply to, um, to, you, to, universe, um, to law firms. And then if you get one, then they will sponsor you to go to law school. Mm. Um, and I, the firm that I got into, so Slaughter and May, at the time they were trialing this new accelerated LPC. Yeah. It basically was um, the one-year course. Sorry, now I just need to get my door. One second. No, no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Man, can I just say, man, once Patrick, again, you're, Europe, man. Patrick, you love it. You love this conversation. I'm just like, yo, man. When you, hear, when you hear about things that they do in Europe, you're like, man, why can't it be like that here? It's so much structure. Europe is so much structure. It's a degree of the system. God, yeah. It, it's like, you know what's funny? We've been doing this podcast for 
or whatever, like mm-hmm. nine months. And every time I hear about the education in Europe, it's like, well, a system to help the people. Ugh. Yeah, it's very different. Our system is very, very different compared to, because I think as well, it's, you know, it's more, let's just get it done and move on and do your other, and it's, it's, and it's not such of a big business as it is in the States, right? It's not really privately owned. It's very government regulated in terms of how much you can charge. Can I ask you a question, um, Crystal? So um, in, in law school, or is is does the government pay for it? Is that something you guys have to pay? So it depends. Um, I got mine paid for, so social media paid for me to go to law school, and they also gave me a card to not work while I was at law school. Wait, they gave you a wait, wait, wait. They gave you a what? Yeah, they gave me a living grant so that I didn't have to work. So I didn't have to work while I was at law while I was at law school, so that you don't have to worry. Because obviously they understand that some people have the financial constraints that you can't afford to be at law school all day every day and then keep yourself afloat. When my Amer- when our American people hear this, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm really just like so. Because I've been looking up with some stuff. Oh God! Oh, that's hilarious. So mm-hmm. wow, when she gets when she comes and joins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, so she, oh man, I'm gonna ask her a question. I know I'm gonna be devastated by the answer. I already know what she's gonna say. Yeah, sorry, what was she saying? So, so what you're saying is you, you don't owe any money, no, no loans or anything like that? Um, you did if you go to a university. Yeah. Um, but again, at the time that I studied, university was only 3,000 a year. I'm gonna yeah, get up and leave right now. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah, really they're cap. Yeah. cap. So it's like 3,000 a year cap. Oh, man, Julian, why'd you leave? Why, yeah. why did you leave? I don't understand. Why'd you come here? I... <laughs> so, uh, are there a lot of black female solic- solicitors? Um, there's not that many. I think that there are a few. Mm, I mean, I can't talk about the whole industry right. as a whole. But I can give you, like, for example, when I was at school from May, there was maybe five. Mm-hmm. In in the firm of maybe three hundred lawyers, there were six black female lawyers. Wow. Yeah. Is, is there is there um in London is there like a black um like lawyer organization? I know in the states there's a lot of those like, you know, there'll be like black doctors organization. Patrick, I'm pretty sure you know there's like black lawyer organizations stuff mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are there are a few, but they're very like informal, as in they're not necessarily like very widely. Accepted, maybe it's like you know us in the black community accept them, but they're not like they're not very like oh you know. Yeah. Um, so there definitely is like a black young professionals network. There is a black lawyers prof- uh, network. Yeah, oh. and there definitely are. There are things, but they are there are things that probably have started in our community, right? So people yeah. within our community felt that this is what's necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah. So, like, how did you go from, like, corporate finance, energy, and infrastructure to, like, the entertainment business? Because that's, like, two different, that's two different, I mean, I'm assuming yeah. it's two different things, but am I, is it not, like? Yeah, no, definitely, it was, you know, I always say it's God, because it wasn't something that I had initially thought about. I think yeah. it's very strange, because, and I always hate having to say these, whenever I tell people these stories, it's like, it always seems like it's name-dropping, and it honestly it's not. <laughs> Hey, drop those names. Drop. Um, but I lived, I lived in Ghana um, in 2016, so I quit my job um, working for a law firm here. 
and I moved to Ghana and I was working for a law firm in Ghana. Wow. Because I really wanted to do stuff in the continent. Um, and yeah, I really wanted to do stuff in the continent. I left London Got to Ghana. Yeah. And at the time, I was friends with Fuse ODG, who's like a, a big kind of Afrobeat pop artist here. Mm-hmm. Um, so I used to go to his house a lot during my lunch breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and one day I was there, and Burner Boy was there. Oh. And this was like my first time I ever met him. This was like 2016. This was like the first time I ever met him. And we were just like all hanging out and chilling and talking. And they were just kind of talking about the music industry. And just things that they were doing and whatever. And I remember saying to them, I was like, you know what? I'd really love to start a law firm where like I could represent you guys and like set the standard and you know, all my artists would like, kind of get the same thing. I remember we were just talking about it, and then um, Susan was like, Yeah, man, you should definitely do it, like, definitely do it. Um, but I never really took it seriously. Mm-hmm. It was just like a conversation, it was just you know, we're all sitting around. So I remember seeing Bernard the next day again. When we're all out, and we just again, I was all talking about it, and he was just like, Yeah, no, definitely, yeah, do it, do it, like, do it. Yeah. Um, and then forgot about it, carried on doing my day job because I was still in the energy and infrastructure at this time. Um, and actually, I moved to Ghana because I really wanted to move into that space of like doing finance transactions involving the continent. That's yeah. why I, and I couldn't get a job in London, so I made a very big gamble to quit my job here, move to Ghana to get experience with the hopes that a firm will hire me back to London, mm-hmm. um, which actually did happen. And it happened a bit earlier than I thought it would be because I moved to Ghana in like August. And by like October, a firm had called me and said, and we want to interview you. And then they offered me the job in November. But I said, look, I'm, 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 I paid rent in Ghana. I'm going to be here for six months. So I'm going to stay. I um, ended up staying into January 2017 when I moved back. But I already had those conversations saying, oh, I want to do music law, but now I'm back to London to work in energy and infrastructure again. Right. Um, and then, strange enough, when I was in London interviewing, um, my friend who I met, at a, there was like a thing in London that was called like Afrobeat Karaoke. Right. And I met a guy um, called Niger Boy. And to this day, like, I never stopped thanking Niger Boy. But he randomly hit me up when I was in Ghana and was like, yo, he's a needs a lawyer. Um, I told him you're really dope. So can you please represent him and I was like but I'm not a you know I'm not a music lawyer mm. he's like it's fine it's fine he knows that don't worry I've told him but just you know, like I was like okay cool I'm coming this was when I was in Ghana I was like cool I've got a friend's wedding and um, so I'm coming back to London in a few weeks when I get back I'll sit down and chat with him so um I remember meeting him it was really late maybe like 11 or midnight in London yeah. and he had just finished the show so he was like yeah come meet me then and we'll go ahead ended up sitting there having dinner he's telling me about what he wants to do i'm telling him about what i want to do right and he was like okay great but how much do you charge because you know i know you're not doing this because you're mother Teresa." and i remember that <laughs> i know you're not mother Teresa." and i said honestly like i made good money as a corporate lawyer. like it, so for me it wasn't the money that was the issue for me it was just i wanted to get into this space i really wanted to you know i really wanted to start working in music so i came back to ghana we switched numbers, but he never called me. He never emailed me. I was like, you know, it's fine. Like, I went back to my life in Ghana, already known I was going to come back to London. And then some of my friends, strange enough, one of my friends hit me up like early January when I got back from Ghana and was like, oh, can you just do me a big favor? And I was like, what's the favor? And she was like, 
I'm casting for a video and I need a dark skinned girl. And I was like, I'm not a video girl, I don't do videos. <laughs> but I know, but like, I'm really like, every girl that I've seen is not working and I need your look. And I said, I'm, I'm not a video girl. And I said, oh, whose video is it? She goes, oh, Mr. Easy's. And I was like, oh, no, I definitely can't be nothing. And then, um, so I didn't go to that shoot. And then the next day, my friend who's a director, um, TK, he's a Zimbabwean. He lives in Zimbabwe now, actually. He called me and said, yo, I remember that you said that you were supposed to be working with Easy, but he hasn't, he hasn't hit me back. Come to this shoot. Like, you definitely see him come to the shoot. Yeah. So I was like, okay, cool. So I went to the shoot. And literally, the minute Easy saw me, he was like, weren't you supposed to be my lawyer? I was like, yeah, but you didn't email me. And he was like, oh, sorry, my bad. Okay, cool. I'm going to email him. That's just how we started rocking. So, yeah, I was, I was working with him for just over three years. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. So that's, that's kind of how it started. So I just started off with easy, just learning and learning. And one of my partners in the law firm was supervising me. That kind of advice. Yeah. I told him, look, like this, this ice has reached out to me. I know I can't really do it alone. So can I do it for the firm? So it's like, yeah, as long as there isn't any conflict, then, you know, do it. And he's like, you know, we've got colleagues in the States I'm sure can help you. As long as there isn't any conflict and we're not representing any of the labels, then sure, do it. Um, so that's what I did. I literally was doing my music. I was doing finance law, yeah. working incredible hours as a finance lawyer by day. And then and then um, uh, being a music lawyer when I got home. So whatever time I'd get home is then when I'll start doing stuff again or whatever. Okay. Which, um, which industry do you find the toughest? Is it corporate or music? Corporate. Corporate okay. Corporate is definitely more, um, corporate's more high stakes. It's more more stressful. There's more risk. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's also different when whenever um, people meet me now and they think like I'm this baby lawyer, right? That mm-hmm. we've never met before. But it's like, no, I've, I've handed two million dollar deals before. Um, so, you know, you're playing with a lot bigger numbers. Yeah. Um, one second. No, no worries, no worries. Um, yeah, so you're dealing with bigger numbers. You're dealing with people that understand, you know, the urgency of the matter. Uh-huh. Um, you're also dealing with, you know, now in music, if I don't get something done by six o'clock, my boss is like, oh, you know, go home. Whereas in corporate, it's like, no, you're forced to stay there until you're done. So if you said, if you told the client the document's going to be up like six this evening. This evening may mean 1 a.m. <laughs> this evening may mean 7 a.m. the next morning. So you're constantly working just to meet, just but, to meet these um, things, yeah. But um, I, I don't know. I, I guess I'm thinking with, like, uh, with music, you have to deal with, like, personalities, you know, and, like, some artists lack, like, sort of, like, uh, proper infrastructure. I know I'm thinking of yeah. American artists. You know, that doesn't, that's not... That's not tough as well. You know, hey, we have to have a meeting at seven. And it's like, oh, no, I'll be there when I'll be there. I'm an artist. No, I mean, luckily for me, uh-huh. as a business affairs lawyer, I can be quite tough about my time. Mm-hmm. I think within, as an a as an AR is very different. But as a business affairs lawyer, I can be quite tough about my time and be like, no, I finish at six and six, I'm done. Right? Yeah. Um, as, a, as an A&R, that's different. But... I think that's why I love being a musical artist. because I am a people person. I think that is why I struggle with corporate law because corporate law, as much as they say it's collaborative and you're working with a team, there were certain times when I'm on a transaction, it's just me and the partner, and he's gone home. He's fucked up home. Sorry, can I swear? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. 
Uh-huh. He's gone home to have dinner with his family because he knows that he's not responsible for, you know, he's not doing the work. Right. So somebody's there late just working by himself. Um, and so it, I didn't find it as collaborative. Like, I didn't find it as, you know. Right. Um, but no, I'm a people person. So for me, handling the egos is not a problem. And I think as a woman, I find it so hilarious as well because I'm always handling men's egos. Uh-huh. Um, which I find, and I, I find it funny because I think as a woman you can kind of disarm it as well. I think it's easier to kind of disarm it and bring it down when you're uh-huh. dealing with men compared to like another man with like his ego is also involved. I can just kind of be like, okay, do you know, yeah, how about let's try this and let's do that. So it doesn't really bother me, but I'm a people person. Music is very social, like, you know. Oh, right, right. It's going to events late, late after the, you know, you've, you've done a full day in the office and then you're still going to an event. Or you're going to dinner with someone, or you're doing. I enjoy it. Like for me, I literally that's where I thrive. I have a question about music, but I'll ask you later. You want to go, uh, Patrick or Joan? This is so great, Crystal. This is great. Uh, you guys want to go to that? Go to that next question, number four. This is yeah. great. Uh, so, here in the age of social media and streaming, how has that affected the function of uh, an AR, such as you know artist development and analytics, fake um, numbers and stuff like that? To some degree, I think streaming has democratized music. So it means that, you know, we can focus on a lot of different artists at the same time. Mm. Yeah, because before it was like, it's whoever demos you got is who you'd be aware of. Mm. Whereas now it's like, you know, I can go on Spotify and see what is what is trending. Um, I can, you know, you even if like now, you know, when Spotify makes like playlists for you, like right. after you've, after you've after you've listened to a few hours of music, Spotify will start generating playlists based on what you're listening to. So also that's a good way for us to discover new things. You know, Spotify might put something on the playlist and be like, oh, I've never heard this artist before. And then you're able to actually um, actually like look at their other work and look at the other things that they've done and be like, oh okay, so um, I think fake numbers. I don't know. I'm not really the person that um, agrees to the fake number point. Hmm. Because, um, you, know, you know, sometimes, um, um, Crystal, like, um, mm-hmm. you'll see, like, these artists where they'll have these crazy numbers. And they listen to their song and they'll be like, I don't understand how this number has this many numbers. Yeah. And, you know, I don't know if there's this thing where you can, like, buy. I've heard of, like, people buying Spotify plays or buy, like, to make their numbers look good. Because if your numbers look good, the algorithms of the machine can put mm-hmm. you up. In, oh, I can get on a Drake playlist. I can get on a Nipsey Hustle playlist, and mm-hmm. then my career starts. You know, I, I'm verified and etc. Yeah, I definitely have heard about that. I definitely have heard. You know, there, there are. I mean, we definitely do as a legal department, obviously, because I wear my two different hats. But as a legal right. department, we definitely do get emails that do talk about stream manipulation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that can even be done within the label. So if it's a label Ooh. telling people, stream this track, I'm not saying the labels do it, please, I'm not saying that. It can be that easy to manipulate if you were that type of label to say, I need everyone in this building to stream this track, keep streaming, 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 streaming. Mm-hmm. Um, because obviously you're streaming from your personal accounts, right? So how are they going to know that you are a label person who's just streaming the same track over and over and over again? So definitely stream manipulation does exist, and I think labels are trying to make sure that their personnel aren't doing it. So as a label person, actually, you're not supposed to buy your artist's music. And there are certain things that labels put in place so that 
no one can say, well, actually, these numbers have been manipulated. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I guess that does exist. I think in every system, there's always space for manipulation or for people to use it in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. I think that that's always open to, you know, wherever there's technology and human beings, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. really, you know, and everything. So I think definitely, but I think at the same time, it's like numbers. Numbers from a label point of view are two different things. So I would care as a business first person because I care about how much money we're making. Right, right, right. So I only care about the numbers, you know, to calculate how much are we actually made from this artist. And I think artists really care about it more because of egos and being able to say I stream so much and for chart purposes, right? So it depends on what you're looking at, from what position you're looking at it. Um, but from my legal and business affairs hat, for me, it's just more money. But I can see what that money is just looking at the financials. I don't need to look at the numbers to prove anything. I, I can just look at how much we've got. But I understand from the A&R point of view, yes, it's because we do look at that. You know, we do we do still have data-led A&R. So yeah. what's on that extremely well? Yeah. And what viral hits are streaming well? Um, which is why, you know, you get the hits like... Um, Lil Nas X, for example, that was a very data-led AMR process. Right. Uh, so that was actually found internally in, in the UK. Right. It was streaming heavy. Um, and that was one of our data-led people that we, we tracked on that data. So it was like, you know, that song streaming heavy, let's go and sign. So that was what Lil Nas X was an example of that. Was, it was very data-driven. It wasn't very organic. Like, oh, you know, this kid that was going for a long time, just, oh, Hackers do streaming guys just jump on it and you jump on it and you amplify and you make it bigger than it is. But there's loads of songs like that where it's like very data driven. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether you believe that the artist is a proper artist proposition or if you just think that this song is good, we can ride it for as long as we can, right. it just depends. You know, I think Blueface is also one of those examples where it's very data driven. Mm-hmm. The song was streaming heavy. As a, um, if you can stay, stay, stay here and um, keep your AR hat on, how do you, how has streaming services affected artist development? Because, like, uh, I'm just thinking, like, somebody like one of my favorite rappers, Kendrick Lamar, he had mixtapes that were albums for like two or three, like, albums. And then he got on Aftermath and is like, well, Dre doesn't have to develop him. He already built a fan base, that figured mm-hmm. out. Style and style and, and sound. How does that? How is artist development affected? Whereas, like in the eighties or nineties, you get an mm. artist, you build them up. How does that? Um, I don't think it's affected it as much. I think in the market, we've all kind of just accepted that there is the data-driven A and R process mm. and a very organic A and R process, right? And I, I think as a label, you can't ignore either. Mm-hmm. In that. You know, it takes a long time for you to get an artist from zero to break. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Invest organically in that person. But, you know, you still got to pay bills and you still got to make sure you're making money as a label. So your, a- your data-led A&R is for singles and hits that you think are going to generate cash quickly in that time. Mm. So I think, how has it affected it? I don't think it's affected it much. You can still do organic A&R. There are still loads of artists. Coffee, for example, is an artist that is signed to Columbia Records, and she was a very organic A&R type person. When I joined the label in January 2017, I remember one of my first label meetings 
they were discussing coffee. And I didn't know about this person before I joined the label. And now seeing her from, I didn't know her to this, that is a good example of an organic A&R story. But unfortunately, it's still a business and we're still in the music business and organic A&R is still very time consuming and costly. So you still would need to offset that with more data-driven A&R to be able to generate that cash quickly on artists that don't need that development. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't still be developed because I think we are in danger of having a few artists who don't know how to perform, don't know how to create a body of work because all they know is how to make singles. Right, right, right. right. But when it comes to actually making a body of work, right. it's a bit problematic. So, you know, I still do believe that that still needs to happen. Mm-hmm. There still needs to be, there still needs to be emphasis that even if people are being found on streaming platforms and we're signing them, that we still need to know how to develop them. But I think that's also up to the artists and their attitude towards the music business and labels and allowing labels to actually develop them. Because I think sometimes with artists, once they've had like one or two tracks, it's like, well, I know what I'm doing. You know, the label can't teach me anything. But it's like, no, 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 because it's still a music business. They're still... There is still a science to this to some degree. There is still something that a label can still do to push you. I think sometimes the attitude towards artists is, I've blown, I made the hit single, you know, no label can tell me anything. The label's just a bank. Whereas when you see, and I always tell artists, this is like, name a superstar that isn't signed to a label. And I'm not saying like, you know, name a good hit, name like a good artist, but a superstar. Mm -hmm. So people on the Drake, the Nicki Minaj, the Beyonce levels, and they're superstar, and Drake could still leave a label, but he's still at Universal. Um, because you understand the machine, you understand what that machine can do for you. Let me tell you something right now. You just blew my brain because there's like rappers <clears throat> here in the States where you see these posts where they're just like, stay independent, stay independent, stay independent, stay independent. But it's like all the big artists, they're still signed. There has to be a reason. They're not dumb. Like somebody's yeah. been there. They've been around for 15 years. Like, I'm not saying Beyonce doesn't need it, but it, from the outside looking in, it's like I can't do everything on my own, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you definitely can't. And I think that that's, that's the perception that streaming does. You know, you've got one hit. And, you know, kudos, I think it's amazing. Any, any artist that can get one hit, and when I say hit, as in you're streaming 50, 60, 70 million streams on one song, any artist that can do that, kudos to you, because that's amazing. You need to be able to get fans to become consumers mm. and loyalists to that point that they're streaming your music. I think that's fantastic. But I think let's not let's not forget how fickle music is as well, because your single's great this week and then somebody else's single's great next week. Right. But I think the job of, uh, I remember I was, I was watching a, um, something on social media. It was actually it was actually an IG Live on social media. Um, mm marketing which when i looked at the context of music i was like oh that makes sense when you're talking about turning a fan from just a casual fan to someone who's a loyalist and a consumer and someone that actually buys your products right Mm. for people like frank ocean's fans who frank ocean won't drop an album for two three years but his fans will still wait for the album when it comes up to listen to it tyler the creator yeah yeah, there are people that have that following where they've been able to turn these people into loyalists and consumers. Can and I tell you? Sometimes... I'm sorry, that's because you're okay. I, so in LA, there's like this thing called Randy's Donuts. Patrick and Julie, you know where that is, like by the... Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Tyler, the creator, posted on IG, I'm going to be there in an hour. And I saw the line. Like, was like, yeah. around, I was like, yeah. and this was like maybe four years ago before he had like the big like Grammy music. His yeah. fan base is so freaking loyal. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. So that's what you need to do. And I think that's also what a label is trying to, that's the position a label is trying to get you to. Because music is fickle, right? Music is fickle. Yeah. Music changes fast. As I said, streaming has democratized, streaming and the internet has democratized music. So there's millions of artists. You know, before we could only count maybe 10, 20 main artists. But yeah. now there's thousands of artists um, all, all fighting for everyone's attention. So all fighting for the very limited time that you spend listening to music. Wow. Now, how do you turn those people into loyalists so that they spend their time listening to you? Mm. Wow. Deep. This is this is great. Do you, um, Julian, you want to go to number five? one. And before we do that, I think we need to hear a word from our sponsor. Hi, my name is Loso. Need to try to get a car, but you can't because you got bad credit? That's okay. No credit? That's all right. Just got your stimulus check. Don't spend it on that family. Come down to Modesto's Car Sales. That's right. Modesto's Car Sales. We'll take good care of you. Don't even have a job? That's all right. All we need is everything from you. Make sure you just sign here, here, and here. All right. And make sure you call 1-888-242-2431. That's 1-888-242-243. Make sure you come down to Modesto's Car Sales and we'll take good care of you. Loso. Disclaimer, Modesto Auto Sales. As in no warranty, you will pay all costs for all repairs on this vehicle. This vehicle may not be roadworthy and is not presented as being roadworthy. You must check this vehicle by yourself or have a mechanic examine this vehicle for damage. Actually, fuck that. No use of mechanic. Types of damage that may exist but not limited to may fail state inspection, may have flood damage, may have a cracked head or engine block damage, engine may be damaged or require placement, transmission may be damaged or require placement, differential may be damaged or require replacement, frame may be cracked, bent, or unsafe. Thank you for shopping. Modesto Car Sales. Loso. All right, we're back. All right, welcome back to the Monster Boys podcast. We're here. Talking about law and music. I gotta say, with that sponsor, you know, I need a car. He looks trustworthy. I might have to go get in on that right there. (laughs) I can't can't see it on my end. I'm so upset. Oh, man. I can't see it. Yeah, everybody, Modesto Auto Sales, guys, if you need a car, definitely hit them up. Yeah, with those artists you signed, I'll take good care of them. Oh, oh. (laughs) Oh, we got Julie. Go to number five. Number five, so now for a simple question, should artists still be entering into uh, 360 deals? I know, fun, fun, right? (laughs) This is strange because I think, you know, I'll answer that. No, do you know what? So let let me be as objective as possible. Yes. Um, Because, yeah, let me not keep my, because obviously I also manage artists, so let me try and be objective as possible. Should they sign 360s? It depends on the 360, right? Um, again, we, we have very different systems from how the US have. So, I, you know, me at Sony, I've never seen a 360 where we've included publishing and all that type of stuff because we have the clear boundaries that we don't do with publishing. So it's never going to be in your contract in terms of we're not going to say that we own any of the publishing at all. Um, should the label get 360s based on live, merch, sponsorship, all that? Yes, it depends on what that label has done to increase your profile, mm. right? So if I took you from day zero, so in the case of an organic deal, organic a transaction, 
where I've taken you from day zero. No one knows you, right? Because sometimes that's the case with a lot of these artists. We don't know. No one really knows them. You know, you may, maybe you have a thousand monthly followers on Spotify, but we've all listened to, to your music in the, in the meeting and someone's like, yeah, great, this person's potential, right? So you've gone from zero to being able to sell 10,000 um, 10, capacity shows. And as a label, I have done that. Would you say it's unfair for me to say, can I get 10% of that? Mm, no. No. I see. Yeah. Right? Would it, would it be a fair to, to me to say, let me get 20% of that? Because in effect, I was the vehicle by which, well, not, not entirely, I didn't do the work entirely, but I was the vehicle by which a lot of the work on propelling your image was done, right? Mm-hmm. right. I had the PR teams that, that, that pushed PR for you. I had the marketing teams that, you know, knew where to pitch your music and to do this. So is it unfair for me to say, well, I'd like 20% of anything that you make from live merchandise or sponsorship? Mm-hmm. I don't see that as being unfair. Where I think it's unfair is when people are going into the very dangerous territories where it's like, and I've seen this before, where it's like, we're getting 70% of all your income. Jeez. That's a very different deal altogether. Whereas like there's no differentiate, there's no differentiation from the music and the other stuff, stuff right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas like I'm getting, you know, all your income comes to me and then I take 70% and you take 30. Those are different. I think that's I think those are the type of 360s that people should be wary about. But in terms of from my experience in the music industry, those are not the ones that we well, we're not offering that at Sony, but I also do understand the labels. Um, a label's point of view to say, well, I, you know, I've put some money in, I've paid people that work for the label, you know, to push you. So why should I not get a cut of that? Yeah. Um, See, that's what's interesting. Like, like you hear, I mean, you just hear so many artists complain about the labels and I can understand like an artist like that built themselves up, right? That's like, oh, I mm-hmm. spent 10 years building up a fan base or whatever. But if you partner with somebody and you go into their business, you're in their business. Mm-hmm. Wrong to think that? Like, if I go sign with Sony, it's like, well, you're with Sony. So Sony's going to have demand. They don't need you. You need them because they can get somebody mm-hmm. else. No, I don't know. Am I wrong to think that? But I would say that inherent to all of it is like, and Chris, obviously correct me, but, you know, there's a, because any contract, you know, it's a negotiation, it's leverage. There's going to be yeah. good and bad for both sides. Yeah. And obviously how much leverage you have de- will determine, you know, the good terms versus the bad terms. Mm-hmm. So I mean, at the end of the day, you can always say no, you know? Yeah. So there's the example of the, uh, I don't know, a Chance the Rapper or a Kendrick, where if you built yourself up, you know, you have leverage where, you know, you can yeah. argue about the percentage, like, okay, yeah. eh, 20 seems like too much, 10. Yeah. And, so you, you can do that. Now, obviously, because it's a negotiation, they can say yeah or no. You guys can find a middle ground. Or maybe if you don't, you walk away. But yeah, you know, to any agreement, you don't have to go into it. But yeah, it, it's, uh, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I always say that I don't believe in a bad deal. I don't, in anything, I don't believe in a bad Even sometimes when I've done stuff for myself, and I'm like, damn, you know, that was, I don't believe in a bad deal. I believe in the best deal that your bargaining power and your knowledge could get you at that time. Because I think it's always interesting to look in hindsight to say, oh, that was a shit deal, right? Because I remember when that Meg the Stallion thing happened and so many people became lawyers and, you know, 
and, and JD holders on Twitter when it's like, yeah, yeah, in hindsight, four years later, you can look at that deal and be like, oh, that was a bad deal because now you are here. Mm. But when she was negotiating, she was still here. Mm. So those terms at that point might have been great for her and she might have been like, great. Um, and now she's here. And don't get to that. I do believe in the right to renegotiation, mm. um, which is why I'd always tell artists, you know, if you can try building points in any contract where you can renegotiate and say, after year two, let's go back if I've hit these type of, if no. I hit these type of thresholds, these type of numbers, you know, my royalty goes up or I get this or I get that, you know, build that in because a contract is a fixed document that dealt with what position you were in at that time. Right, right. So build, make sure you build things in as time goes by because the, the contracts, you know, it, I always say the contract is signed at zero. And within a second, one out one, and one has now changed. Somebody else has streamed my music a second after, or somebody else has bought my merch a second after. So the contract now doesn't even deal with the contract the day that we sign it, doesn't even deal with my current position anymore. Mm. Um, so always build in that right to negotiate. I'd always tell artists to do that. Um, if, even if you don't feel like you have the leverage to get that position now, have faith in yourself that you will have that leverage in a year or two years' time. So I had that foresight to build that in. Mm. And just wondering, because um, you mentioned earlier, you said you still manage artists, correct? Yeah. So do you manage artists as still, like as an employee of Sony, or do you do that separate from Sony? Separately. I wear many, many hats. So I manage artists separately. Okay. And how does that work in terms of time? Like, how do you... I'm used to just constantly working. I'm, as I said, I was used to the whole being a, a corporate lawyer and working till whatever time and coming home and working again. Like, I'm so used to it that sometimes it got to a point where I have three evenings. I'm like, oh, damn, what do I do with myself now? Um, I'm a busybody. I'm constantly working. I'm constantly thinking, even if I'm just sitting down, someone's talking to me, someone's sending me something, listen to this music, do this, do that. I'm also a stylist. So I'm always looking at stuff and styling. So it's just, I'm constantly doing stuff. So I'm used to it. Who are some of the uh, uh, artists that you're managing right now? So I manage um, YC, um, is the Afrobeat artist, so I manage him. Mm -hmm. um, I'm also currently managing a new artist, actually, so starting from scratch, um, a girl called Sedan. Mm -hmm. um, and she is a rapper based out in Brooklyn. I actually found her on an A&R tip, so I was like, oh, I found her. I was like, great, pitched her to the label. Mm -hmm. They were saying it's too early for her, and we carried, carried on still like speaking to each other and then she wants me to manage her. So right now I'm just trying to a and her first EP. Mm -hmm. um, but she kind of gives me Azalea Banks vibes in that she is very, you know, New York, Brooklyn rapper, but we're trying to have her rapping on very Afro-inspired beats. So mm -hmm. the Afro beats, the Afro-inspired beats. Okay. Um, so that she can still cross over. Because she's Nigerian, called Sudan, and lives in New York. So, mm. <laughs> um, and then a new, a new kind of personality called Charlie Mace. So he's a guy who's kind of popping up in the UK now, and that's kind of a new thing. So I started that maybe like two weeks ago. Oh, okay. um, and then another presenter called Busy African. So kind of still low level people, but we kind of grow with them organically and see where we can go. Mm. Um, Patrick, you want to go to number six, or did Julian want to number six? I don't know. How the COVID nineteen uh, has affected the, your work and um, and the, you know the the agency, the the label. Yeah, the label. Um, it hasn't 
I mean, it's different. Maybe I'm not seeing the numbers in the background. So be like, oh, it's really affecting us. But I think music is going to stay the same, right? Everyone's online, so it doesn't matter where you are, you're still going to access music. Um, I mean, one thing I know is streaming numbers have gone down slightly. Mm. Um, but really? Yeah, I thought, yeah, I thought it would go down. But um, when I was talking to my colleagues, it was like they were trying to, you know, and then I understood that um, music is still something that we, it's still an activity based thing that we do. Mm-hmm. They listen to it when you're commuting in the car, um, in the gym. Um, it's very rare that someone will just spend the whole day listening to music. So although we have a lot of time in the house, the activities that you normally would consume a lot of music, so you'd have a playlist for the gym, right? You have a playlist for your commute. You have a playlist in the car. You don't have that anymore because we're at home and people have moved to more audio-visual type things, so YouTube, Mm. um, streaming platforms, that type of stuff. So, yeah, numbers have gone down slightly. Uh, In terms of volume of music, we're still putting up music in the same way, I think. Maybe it's more difficult for our artists mm-hmm. in terms of being able to record. But I know some artists are still making that work. You know, they still go into the studio and, and self isolate in the studio, just them and the producer, or them and the um, engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, but as an as a label, I'd say not much. You know, we're all still working from home. We still got our laptops. We still, you know, we're still able to have our calls. The music label. Oh, the music industry in general, I think live has probably taken the biggest hit because, you know, there's no live at all. Right, um, right. enough, that's kind of now moved digitally. So now you're seeing a lot of the brands partnering up with artists now do live shows on their IG lives and stuff. So it's yeah. now just moved. So people are still performing live. They're just they're performing live on your mobile phone. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, live has definitely taken a big hit. But Sony, we don't do live. So we haven't really felt that effect. How are um, just to segue? How how do you think artists are gonna have to deal with um, um, with the lack of live uh, performances? Because I mean, they're saying there might not be live performances till twenty one, right? Mm. So like, yeah. how does that how does that affect a future artist's deal? Because you want to make money off of merchandise at a show, you know, touring and stuff like that. But if you can't tour, specifically when it comes to us as a label, I don't think it will affect that much. Anyway, we just I mean, we can still put it in the deal because live will still come back. Right. <laughs> yeah, a deal is not one year or two years. Sometimes deals are two, three years. So live will still come back. I think specifically when you're just talking from an artist point of view is, yeah, it is going to be a bit difficult because, yeah, there are certain artists that are not big streaming artists, but they are big touring artists. Mm-hmm. Um, right, right. So it's now you have to find a way. And I think... The artist that will crack this is probably the artist that will be able to survive this. Is how do I now monetize from me performing live online? Mm. Right. I kind of like OnlyFans, but music edition. So I think once an artist is able to, yeah, say, they, yeah. So once you know, it, and it, it probably definitely is going to be that caliber of artist, right? The Beyonce, the Drake of the world, maybe the Futures of the world. Once they're able to crack that. Mm. You know, it's opening up another stream of revenue for artists so that instead of us going out, we're paying for the performance. Yeah, which um, just one, oh, sorry, not to cut you off. Just wondering, given that with the live performances, just wondering in the label, what's the what's the conversation to talk around these versus uh, battles that are happening? Mm-hmm. But how are you guys processing it? 
Well, for us, it's a bit different because that, that, there's, there's two different things that we're processing there, right? So we're processing the fact that we're not actually getting paid from Instagram for the for the broad well, not the broadcast, for the public, for the transmission. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to use the best copyright term, making available to the public. It's public. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're not, you know, in the UK and it's slightly different in the US, but in the UK, that's a right protected by copyright. The right to make my music available to the public, which is why we have PRS, which collects your publishing, and then we have PPL, which collects just the exploitation, the master. So if you are going to go to a bar or a club or a concert, mm. they are licensed entities. So they pay a license fee every year and all that money is collected into a pot. So you guys call it sound exchange. Mm. That's yeah. what sound exchange does. So you collect it into this pot and then we calculate whose music's been played um, publicly and then we distribute the money, right? No. In the case of Instagram, we don't make that money. Instagram doesn't have a license for us. Mm-hmm. So in that, to that extent, yes, there's that loss of income in that way however i think we shouldn't take and i think also as a label we don't tend to take a short-term view to to worry about oh my god we haven't got paid for that trans that specific insta live because that will also translate to people going back and listen to that catalog Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right so it means that people will now go and listen to oh my god i haven't listened to 112 in a while or jagged edge in a while or be the man in the world hey. and you go and you stream that music yeah. crazy. Hey, it was good um, music like this. <laughs> yeah. right, so that man was yeah, exactly. No, I, I literally was there in my good life. I remember when I was like 15 punching on tables. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah so you can't take the short-term view to say, well, I want to kill this because I'm not getting any money for the streaming when you think about the long-term thing of actually is introducing that music and then that catalogue, because a lot of these people aren't even like people that are making music now. A lot of those people are catalogue artists, you know, legacy artists that whose catalogue have been out for 10, 15 years. And mm, mm. um, so why would you not want a spike in catalogue? But you don't even have to do anything to market anymore. Okay. I'm, not putting any, I'm not putting any more dollars or any more pounds into marketing Ludacris's chicken and beer album, but my streams have gone up 200%. Yeah. Right, right, right. Why, why would you be mad at that? from a business standpoint. From a principle standpoint, yes, I guess it's annoying for labels because, yes, we, and I think it's more because we'd like Instagram to tidy up that loophole mm. and just to pay it, but, you know. Is there anybody, like all the, you know, all the pros you're talking about, have you heard, maybe not necessarily at Sony, but any of the labels talking about how they can get in on this or? Uh, no, I think, and, and, and I think, because also Versus is a very U, U.S., specific thing mm-hmm. whereas in the UK we have um, and you know this is why I love black ingenuity but um, there's a radio station that we have here called There's No Signal and it was just like a bunch of young black men who started a radio station from their, from their bedroom basically and they are doing the same type of clashes but it's not the artists themselves mm-hmm. it's like two hosts who come they pick 10, 10 of the best songs to clash each other mm-hmm. and so now what you're finding very funny is because labels know that they have like this dedicated listenership for a certain amount of time they're actually like premiering songs and artists in the breaks in the ad breaks of that radio station uh, uh. so that's also strange enough and i remember in, in the first label meeting after 
one of the verses that was happening and our digital team was like, yeah, and, and this, we did have like an exclusive, we have like an exclusive premiere of this artist song. And yeah, because, and then you look at Twitter and you see the effect of Twitter and everyone talking about this song. So I think in terms of, as a black person, I'd love to see black people owning those type of platforms, you know, in mm. terms of verses and, and ours, there's no signal. So I'd like to see labels not necessarily get involved in the ownership way. But if there's a way that you can work with these platforms to try to break your artists, whatever, great. But as a black person, I'd love to see those things stay in black ownership mm. in the community. This is great. Um, so speaking about um blackness or Africanness, based on the recent Billboard magazine, the you know, the Africa issue, why do you think the generation <laughs> why do you think generation of Congolese music or musicians don't have the same notoriety as, let's say, the West African counterparts. I, I have my own. Me and Patrick and Julian talked about this off camera. I think it's the language. Like, we speak French. You know what yeah, I mean? I think, I think that's the biggest thing, but I think also what, I, what I, the focus that I would like to do is for Congolese and maybe Francophone people to maybe stop. And this is me, you know, Take this with a pinch of salt of what I'm saying, right? Mm -hmm. But I think it's also that we tend to have a little bit of an inferiority complex when it comes to dealing with West African artists. Mm. Instead of actually arming ourselves with the facts, right? West African mm. artists are bigger than Francophone artists. They're not. Yeah. Numbers wise, they're not touching a lot of our artists. They're not touching a lot of Congolese artists. But because they are able to manage their propaganda, and what they put out to the world, they're able to seem bigger than they are, right? Mm. Um, Aya Nakamura, for example, Jaja has streamed 500, has 500 million views on YouTube, I think. Let me check because I like having the right facts. Yeah. Aya Nakamura. Um, Aya Nakamura. Yeah, Jaja now has 552 million views on YouTube, right? Mm. Right? There's no West African artist that's touched those type of numbers. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, what, what, um, what is it? With Gims, what he did with, uh, what is it? Maitre, when he sold out yeah. the Star de Paris or? Exactly. Maitre Gim. There, there's no West African artist that's doing those type of things, but they're able to manage their propaganda mm. so right. that they seem like this is the biggest music industry coming out of Africa. It's not. You know, even when you look at it, last year, the biggest, in the last quarter, I think it was, the biggest song coming out of Africa was not a West African song. And in terms of YouTube, I'm not talking about streaming. Mm -hmm. For streaming, it gets a little bit more complicated. It was not a West African song. It was a Congolese and East African. Ah, uh, yeah. It was in us It was in us And, you know, so, and, and at that point, he was maybe like 50 million views by the end of last quarter, uh, the last quarter of 2019. Um, but I think it's just the way that they're able to manage their propaganda and able to leverage on what they have. I think what we need to do is be able to also leverage that to sell the culture back to the West. Even if we are, even if we are French speaking, because actually, if you think about it, how many people speak Yoruba compared yeah. to French? French is more of a unifying language, but you can still have whiskey in a song telling you Yoruba or David and people still like it. So yeah, I guess there is that language barrier, but I think it's more we need to learn how to sell our culture. Ah, uh, yes. The way and, that the Nigerian people have done it. Yeah, which 
Go ahead, Patrick. I was going to say, because I think it takes us to the next question. So obviously before this whole pandemic stuff, we know that, you know, Folly did that big concert. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and what I wanted to just first to start off, you know, with the concert band, which for those who are watching some of our like non-Congolese, non-African viewers, the concert band. And Christelle, please correct me if I'm wrong. The way I understand mm -hmm. it, um, this concert band has been going on in Europe. What it was for at least 10, 12 years, yeah. where yeah. Uh, essentially you had activists who uh, maybe they didn't like what certain Congolese artists were saying about Congolese politics or just didn't like the yeah. fact that they weren't saying anything at all. So essentially there mm -hmm. was a band pretty much all across Europe, Congolese artists, that they tried to come and say, hey, I'm doing a concert. These people were protested and shut them down. So for a good 10, 12 years, many of our biggest artists out of Congo, Fali, Kofi, well, Kofi had his legal trouble, so he couldn't even do it if he wanted to. But, <laughs> uh, you know, artists could not tour in Europe. And then our, yeah. what is it, most recently, Fali went and had, you know, his, uh, what was it, Versi or was it Olympia? Versi, yeah, I think it was Versi. Versi. So he had a concert, sold out, huge thing. Um, so just wondering, for you first, how do you feel about the concert then? What's your, your stance on it? Um, yeah, I think that that's, I, I would put that as one of the biggest reasons why our music industry isn't where it was before. I always say this to my friends that actually understand African music, that Congolese music was probably one of the first Pan-African music off the continent, right? Right, So you right. could go to a Nigerian party and hear um, Awilo, or you would hear a Kofi song, or you would hear that type of stuff. Even... Even the fact that people would mistake Magic System as a Congolese band, Nigerian band, yeah. was Yo. testament to the fact that that was a very that was one of the first Pan African genres mm -hmm. on the I continent. With Congolese for like till like maybe like a year ago, yeah. I, I, <laughs> I didn't find out until college. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, yeah. So. Um, yeah, so I think that that was it, and I think that band really did serve a big disservice to us in that we weren't able to explore our culture. You know, you weren't able to have people experience our music live um, compared to how they're able to up with other people. Can I um, can I ask this question? Do you um, mm -hmm. is it because just from the outside looking in, we don't collaborate enough? There's too much like in-house fighting. Mm -hmm. Because that's a good way. If you have somebody that has a hundred million fans and another person that has eighty million fans, like you know, in the South and rap, they all work together. They all do rap because yeah. it's like, yo, I'm popping, you're hot. Let's make music together. It just helps out the energy of the music to continue. But when you say collaboration, what do you mean? As in within Congolese or with other artists? Within within Congolese. Well, within Congolese, I don't think it serves to do anything but just reinforce your music to the same audience. Mm, okay. um, the, 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 the point of a feature, um, if you're looking at it from just like a purely A&R scientific thing, is to, is to have a new audience introduced to that music, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why you would have a rap feature on a pop song because you're hoping that that pop, that pop artist fans will then be would then be introduced to the rapper and vice versa, the rapper to the pop, uh, the, the rapper's fans introduced to the pop. So if you're just going to have a Congolese artist feature of another Congolese artist, you're just serving the same market. Mm -hmm. You need to do what Inos B did is go and do it with a Tanzanian or a South African or a Nigerian or a Ghanaian, 
which then means that you're introducing that person into a new market. It means that your culture is being seen by a new person, a person that doesn't understand Lingala, a person that doesn't understand what we're talking about. Um, that's, that's the only way that it would do it. And that's why you have Innospi doing that, um, where Tanzania is a massive market, or Tanzania is a massive market in terms of music. Mm. Um, uh, because, because of Swahili, Unify, unifies three or four countries. Mm. Right, unifies Kenya, some of Uganda, and some of Tanzania, a little bit of Zambia. Um, you know, a, a lot of those East African countries are unified by that one single language. So that's why it made it made that a very a very good collab in my eyes. Mm. Um, but it's something that Nigerian artists realized a very long time ago. You know, when you had David o doing songs with Diamond Platinums or doing songs with um with uh, what are they called? the South African band, I can't remember that. Mafiki Zolo. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're trying to you're trying to introduce yourself to a new market. And I think that's what our artists need to do. You need to start featuring with people and introducing yourself to new markets. Come away from the Francophone market and maybe try Lucifone or English speaking and just try and make it work. And I think it's the same way that um what's his name? Uh Who's that Ivorian guy that just died? DJ Arafat did that. Yeah. Hey. Very well when he started doing it with Nigerian artists. So then now Nigerian knew DJ Arafat. You know? Right. Fali does it, no? Yeah, he does. He's done quite a few. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He does it. I think he learned early on that that's what he needs to do. He does it. He definitely does do it. But I think also what kind of plays to Fali as well was, you know, he's also that fashion icon. He's a good looking guy. So you're able to hit a lot of the, you know, you're able to hit a lot of fans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's very real. Because it, it's funny you mention that because, you know, in our music, there's certain artists we have. They're big back home, but they're not really big outside of Congo. Like there's people like Faragola who would be like, "Oh yeah, he's he's huge," but mm-hmm. not so much outside of like our circles. You mm-hmm. know, so it's just yeah. like yeah, that, that's pretty deep. Like just making sure you like you work with other people. Just maybe the next country over, it it, it can make a difference. That's it. North Hunter, we're still very familiar, you know, East African culture is still very familiar to us. Swahili is still a kind of language that you can kind of, if you listen very carefully, you can still kind of understand what they say, you know, when I'm in Zanzibar or Tanzania or, or Kenya, I can understand, I can get by and understand kind of what they're saying. Right. So even just, yeah, as simple as going just across the border, you know, doing a track of Salty Soul, or Eddie Kenzo from Uganda, mm. or, you know, even if you want to talk about other Bantu, you know, go and do a track from Nasty C in South Africa. Um, that's the type of stuff that you, you can be doing. Um, Pat, or Julian, you guys want to get number eight? Well, yeah, so oh, no, no, we, oh, we already touched number eight. I'm sorry, number nine, I'm sorry. Pat, how can how we can nurture, develop, uh, and propel the Congolese music industry? Um, I think we need to really learn how to. Firstly, I think we need to learn how to export our culture first, mm. um, and the music will follow. Right. So make being Congolese cool. You know, um, the little phrases that people might pick up and and uh, no in my group chat. One of my friends is um, one of my friends is from Sierra Leone. And we were saying something, and she kind of had a run, and she goes, ah, oh, Mawa. And I was just like, huh? <laughs> I was like, what did I hear? 
Yeah. yeah, she was like, oh, remember my, you know, she said, remember my, my best friends are Congolese. So just those little things, you know, exporting our food, exporting our, our fashion, exporting the things about our culture. And mm-hmm. um, once you're able to do that, the music will follow. Yeah. Um, because unfortunately, it's hard to export music without people understanding where, one, maybe the history that the music's come from, the culture that that music's come from. Right. Because our music is very culturally different from other people's, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very culturally different. Even people understanding why is the song twelve minutes long. <laughs> all right, all right, all right, all right. You got to burn out the mikate. That's why when you're at a party. Yeah. Or why is <laughs> some random person in the middle of the song? Who who's Adolf Mudikosi? Who who is this guy that's talking about? <laughs> like, look, you got to make money. Don't worry about it. Just keep dancing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like, I think that's what we need to do first. Secondly, I think we definitely do need to get out of or get get ourselves away from this whole concert band crap. So I think it hasn't started to do anything because I think one thing that I can respect about countries like Ghana and Nigeria, maybe it's all Ghana because I've lived there and I can see the changes, is that they've been able to export that culture and that exportation has meant that people are now inclined to go to Ghana mm-hmm. and visit Ghana and invest in Ghana. Um, so then we see the impact that culture and music has now had on their tourism on a development has had on their investment that they actually have as a country. Um, and I think also just taking a, like if we change the narrative of the countries about as well, mm. um, that will help. So we're not just seen as a country that loves to dance. Yes, we do love to dance, but we make beautiful music. You know, um, we have very talented artists, talented writers, talented producers. I think also we need to try and shed light on all those type of people as well. The producers, because obviously that's also what West Africans have. They, it's not just their artists that are well-known. It's also their producers. It's also their writers. It's also people in the background. Right. And they're all known, and they all make up the music industry as a whole, not just an artist. Yeah, because it's, you know, in America, what do they say? The number one export is Black culture. That's mm-hmm. the number one. Everybody got tats. Everybody says the N-word. Everybody yeah. has their backwards. There's Bloods and Crips in parts of the world where there's not even gangbanging. Is that <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, no, that's that, that's real. I mean, on a, we're on a smaller scale right now, but I can see when, you know, the Mikate video, how I have my non-Congolese friends, they'll mm-hmm. see me, because I don't like peanut butter on Mikate, where they're like, oh, Mikate, the beignet. And they'll come up to me and I'll be like, oh, yeah. I didn't even know you were watching it, but it's like, okay, I understand, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, you're exporting that culture. Wow, I never looked at it like that. Yeah. Um, Make it familiar so that yeah. even if they don't understand all the language, that culture is still familiar to them. You know, even when I look at, like, Japanese people and that kind of whole dance hall, uh, the underground dance hall culture that they have there, they say, you know, half of the time I'm sure they don't understand what they're saying, but they're brought into that culture, right. dance hall culture. Um, and that's what you need to do. Yeah, I mean, what is it with uh, Sergi Baka? What he did uh, with his his cooking show, or that one episode where he had them eating kwanga and fumbwa, you know? Like mm-hmm. I saw that on like non Congolese pages. It was like, oh wow, this is it yeah. worked. Especially, yeah, so that's what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah. guess I was. I, did she answer number ten, Patrick, or should I go to? We, uh, I mean, we can touch on it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. Um, yeah, Crystal, do you think Congolese musicians have the responsibility to use their platforms to affect change back home? 
Oh, definitely. definitely. I think anyone that has a platform has the responsibility to effect change in whatever community they're in. I think if you are going to take $1 or $2 from anyone to listen to your music or come to your show, you have a responsibility to make sure that you are not the only person living in 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 wealth in that country, you know? Like, yeah. So if you know that you can have a, a private conversation with the, the minister of this and that can make a difference or, or you can do this to make a difference and definitely do it because I think what's the point of you just living in a country where you're the only person making music and everyone is paying into your pockets but you're not doing anything with that influence, you're not doing anything. Mm. So I definitely understand why the conversation at the beginning were like, well, you guys should actually speak on these issues. And if you're not, then, you know, there's an issue. I definitely think there is. I think we have a big problem in our country. And I think, one, artists can be the people that can shine a light to that, to the wider community, you know, the wider community that will care. And two, if you have influence, you know, influence with the people on the ground that make the decisions then yeah definitely because it can't just be that you are the only person benefiting from this right right this is great um we're good this is the our our last question but before we get to the last question this has been this has been one of the best podcasts like episodes like thanks this is freaking great. You gotta have you back. There's so much more we could ask you. So no, you gave us like please come back. You gave us like million dollar information and music. Like this is this is incredible. Um, but we do. come back. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. Come back. Yeah. That'd be great. Um, we ask this question to everyone. Um, my what is your spirit animal? So what's an animal that you share characteristic with, or you wish you could share characteristic with? Caterpillar. <laughs> what? what? Really? Mm. You've thought about this. That was like yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a very specific, yeah. yeah. Um, because <laughs> I understand that process of, you know, um, I understand that process of hibernation. And so I guess because I'm looking at the notes that you guys have and even my journey in terms of doing three or four years at uni and law school, I was very antisocial. I didn't talk to anyone. You know, I understood there was a process for me to get where I was getting to as a black female. Yeah. So I understood you have to work hard, you have to get these type of grades and you have to make these type of sacrifices, which is what I see in my kind of cocooning stage. Mm. And then when I graduated and I was able to actually become a lawyer and do what I want to do is me turn into a butterfly. So. Yeah. <laughs> that's, and that's why I say I'm a caterpillar. No, that's a great answer. That's a great answer. When I hear caterpillar, I think of what, Julian, what's that food that we eat with the caterpillar? What is it? Oh, yeah. Missy Lee. Yeah. Oh, I hate it. Yeah, yeah I hate it too. That's smell. Yeah. I, I tried it once. I spit it out. I was like, I can't. I can't. It's I heavy. Can't. <laughs> it's heavy in protein. Heavy, yeah. but I, mm. I, I, I can't do it. Um, what you call it? Um, you guys have any more questions or anything? To... Uh, you know, I did have one. Obviously, you know, we're talking about like uplifting the the Congolese music industry or Congolese artists and everything like that. So obviously you got the the current people, the youngsters, but I'm wondering how do we get some of the the older the older musicians, the old guard? Cause for instance, somebody told me this and I was like, wow, that's crazy. Like, you know, for instance, with like uh as an example, Jibe, like Jibe uh, and, and we're all song. Like, you know that that legendary uh concert Jibe did, I think it was at Olympia, whatever it is, the tape everybody had growing up. 
Right? <laughs> um, like, like you see it, you know, Congo to Global posted, Voice of Congo posted like every three weeks or something like that. So Congo to Global is actually my cousin, strangely enough. Oh, word, really? Yeah, Johnny. Yeah, Mok- yeah, that's my cousin. Oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. Hey. World. hey. Small, small, small world. But, you know, I, you know, I bring that up because I, somebody had told me, I guess, for a long time, like some of those uh, albums, some of those mm-hmm. videos like weren't available for purchase digitally for a very long time. And it's like, yo, there's, that's money sitting on the table. But I don't know. Is it an issue of maybe some of our older uh, musicians don't maybe they don't have the right people in their camp? Like, hey, get in on this technology thing. to. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's because we still love it, obviously. We see it. Oh, I remember that memories, but they don't seem to be capitalizing on that. Yeah, I was binge watching. Yeah, I definitely do think obviously also that was the issue of distribution, right? So that was the only way for, if you remember back in the day, the only way that we were getting that was by DVDs, well, video first, and it became DVDs and you buy it in the store or whatever. So that was a big issue about distribution. And how do you the distribution channels right at that time was very fixed. Um, so yeah, definitely. I think they need to be educated that there's a new type of distribution. Now we're now doing things digitally. Beyond that, it's easier for people to access your your material and stuff. Um, so yeah, I think definitely there needs to be that education. But as I said, that's why um, it's not always just about shining the light on artists, but actually what. Who are the people in the industry that are also there that can uplift people? You know, the A and Rs, the producers, the people that understand the music business. Who are they that should teach these other people? Hmm. Okay. All right. Um, Patrick, Julie, any more questions? No, this has been incredible. You know, like uh, the drop knowledge, the amount of information uh, I had. I was just like in, in class and uh, absorbing. Everything I could. I was learning. Uh, yeah, is there? I mean, well, I don't want to plug your social media because you don't want people to like uh, berate you and stuff. Oh, <laughs> let me go ahead and just edit that out. Yeah, yeah. No, no I, don't, I don't mind. I, don't, I actually don't mind. I don't mind. Oh, okay. Okay. my my Insta is private anyway, so I get to screen the. Oh, okay, excellent, excellent. Okay, let me. Let me. That's so fine. You can share. I don't have a problem at all. You can share that. My my, my Insta. Okay, so hold on, let me boom. And then, so yeah, I guess we win the plug-in stage. So yeah, so um, yeah, hey, so uh, so that's her um, Instagram. If you guys want to follow her and just just follow, and she'll decide if she'll follow you back if you can come into her work. <laughs> um, you can follow me, Blake Oisa. Zizi. You can follow Bantu Boys. Um, you know, Instagram, like us on Facebook, YouTube. Um, what is it? We're on Sp- uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm. Like, share. Um, there you'll be able to follow me um julian plug your um instagram chickens at gmail your accent is french so are you based in the states as well or are you based in i'm in the state but i grew up in belgium And, well, Pat, and Pat, go ahead, uh, plug, plug your um, IG. So you can hit me at on Instagram, Congolese.YouTubers or African.YouTubers. We promote the culture, whether it's Congo or the diaspora. Holla, holla. And um, like you said, Crystal, we want to thank you so much um, for being Thanks, on this guys. podcast. Thank you. And thank you so much. And expect an email from me. You probably expected yeah. it in like 
day or two because this information no is like it's second to none. No worries. Email me. Email me. Okay. All right. And if that, we'll see you guys next week. Merci. Take care, guys. Thank uh, you. Ha, ha, ha.